Book 2, Chapter 6 of The Heavenly Twins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Heavenly Twins. Book 2, Chapter 6. Evadne settled down into her new position at once. She took charge of the household and managed it well. Colonel Cahoon was scrupulous in matters of etiquette, and Evadne's love of order and exactitude made her punctilious too, so that there was one subject which they agreed upon perfectly, and it very soon came to be said of them that they always did the right thing. They appeared together everywhere, at the palace receptions, the opera, entertainments on naval vessels, dinners and dances, polo and picnics, and at church. If there was one thing that Cahoon was more particular about than another, it was, in the language of his own profession, church parade. Watching Evadne to detect the first symptom of new tactics on her part became one of the interests of his life. It wouldn't have been good form to take another man into his confidence for betting purposes, seeing that the lady was Mrs. Cahoon, but a wager laid upon the chances of change in her views was the only zest lacking to the pleasure he took in the study of this new specimen of her sex. He used to dance a good deal himself, and danced well too, but after Evadne joined him he gave it up to a great extent and might often have been seen leaning against a pillar in a ballroom, gravely observing her. It was a kind of curiosity he suffered from, a sort of rage to make her out. He was very attentive to her at that period, treating her always with the deference due to a young lady, and for that reason she accepted his attentions gratefully, because they were delicately paid and he was really kind but also as a matter of course. They had begun well together from the very first day, and she was soon satisfied that her position at Malta was the happiest possible. The beautiful place, the bright clear atmosphere, the lively society, all suited her. She had none of the trials peculiar to married life to injure her health and break her spirit, none of the restrictions imposed upon a girl to limit her pleasures, and she enjoyed her independence thoroughly. But of course there were drawbacks, and the thing of all others she disliked most was being toadied. There was one pair of inveterate toadies in the garrison, Major and Mrs. Guthrie Brimston. They belonged to a species well known in the service, and tolerated on the principle of Dame-toi, pour vous que tu nous amuse. Major Guthrie Brimston claimed to be one of the Morning Quest family, and he had a portrait of the Duke, as the head of the house, in his dressing-room. It was balanced on the right by Ecce Homo, and on the left by the Sistine Madonna, but it was popularly supposed that he worshipped the Duke. The pair acted the role of devoted husband and wife successfully, being in fact sincere in their habit of playing into each other's hands for their own selfish purposes, and people who wished for an excuse to tolerate them because they were amusing might say of them quite truly, well, whatever their faults, 
they are certainly devoted to each other. But it was a partnership of self-interest, enhanced by a little sentimentality, and they understood it themselves, for Mrs. Guthrie Brimston confessed in a moment of expansion that she knew Bobby would marry again directly if she died, and certainly she would do the same if she lost him. Why shouldn't she? Mrs. Guthrie Brimston was a nasty-minded woman of extremely coarse conversation, and, without compromising herself, she was a fecund source of corruption in others. No younger woman of undecided character could come under her influence without being tainted in mind, if not in manners. She delighted in objectionable stories, and her husband fed her fancy from the clubs liberally. Her stock in trade consisted for the most part of these stories, which she would retail to her lady friends at afternoon teas. She told them remarkably well, too, and knew exactly how to suit them to palates, which were only just beginning to acquire a taste for such fare, and were still fastidious. Wherever she came, there was laughter among the ladies. Of the high hysteric bacante kind, not true mirth, but a loud laxity into which they were beguiled for the moment, and which was the cause of self-distrust, disgust and regret upon reflection to the better kind. If the question of motive is to be taken into account in considering the words and deeds of people, it may be confidently asserted that the Guthrie Brimstons never said a good-natured thing, nor did a kind one. I say, Minnie, if I give that sergeant of mine a goose at Christmas, I think I'll get more work out of the fellow next year, Major Brimston said to his wife at breakfast one morning. Yes, do, his wife answered sympathetically. And I say, Bobby, I'm going to work Captain Askew a bedspread. He's an awfully useful little man. One form of pleasantry the Guthrie Brimstons greatly affected was nicknaming. They nicknamed everybody always opprobriously, often happily in the way of hitting off a salient peculiarity. But they were not in the least aware that they were themselves the best nicknamed people in the service, and they would not have liked it had they known it, for they were both exceedingly touchy. They held no feelings of another sacred, but their own supreme. Mrs. Guthrie Brimston was known as the Brimston Woman, her conversation bristled with vain repetitions. She was always a worm when asked after her health, and everything that pleased her was pucker. She knew no language but her own, and that she spoke indifferently, her command of it being limited for the most part to slang expressions, which are the scum of language, and a few stock phrases of polite quality for special occasions. But she used the latter awkwardly, as workmen wear their Sunday clothes. Of the Guthrie Brimston morals, it is safe to say they would neither of them have broken either the sixth, seventh or eighth commandments, but they bore false witness freely, not in open assertion, however, for that could be easily refuted, and fair fight was not at all in their line. But when false witness could be meanly conveyed by implication and innuendo, it formed the staple of their conversation. Those Guthrie Brimstons should be public 
prosecutors, Evadne said to Colonel Cahoon at breakfast one morning, commenting upon some story of theirs which he had just retailed to her. I notice when anyone's character is brought forward to be judged by society, they are always counsel for the prosecution. These were the people whom Colonel Cahoon first introduced to Evadne. They amused him, and therefore he encouraged them to come to the house. Mrs. Guthrie Brimston suited him exactly. To use their own choice language, he would have given her away at any time, and she him, but that did not prevent them enjoying each other's society thoroughly. True to her determination to make things pleasant for Colonel Cahoon, if possible, and seeing that he found these people congenial, Evadne did her best to cultivate their acquaintance for his sake. Never successfully, however. A mere tolerance was as far as she got, but even that was intermittent, and the undercurrent of criticism which streamed through her mind in their presence could never be checked. But she was slow to read character. Her impulse was always to believe in people and to like them, and she had to acquire a knowledge of their faults painfully, bit by bit. But Colonel Cahoon helped her here. He was an inveterate gossip, very much in the manner of Mrs. Guthrie Brimston herself, only that he was more refined when he talked to Evadne. And at breakfast, their one tete-a-tete -tete meal in the day, it was his habit to tell her such club stories as were sufficiently decent, and what he said and what she said of each other, upon which he would strike an average to arrive at the probable truth. Do you happen to know what is at the bottom of the feud between Mrs. Guthrie Brimston and Mrs. Malcolmson? He asked her one morning at breakfast. Mrs. Guthrie Brimston's defects of character, obviously said Evadne sententiously. Then you prefer Mrs. Malcolmson, he suggested. Now, I can't get on with her a bit. She always appears to me so cold and censorious. Does she? said Evadne thoughtfully. But she is not really so at all. She is judicial, though, and sincere, which gives one a sense of security in her presence. But she is deadly dull said Colonel Cahoon. Oh, no! Evadne exclaimed, smiling. You mistake her entirely. She made me laugh immoderately only yesterday. I should like to see you laugh immoderately, said Colonel Cahoon. Major Guthrie Brimston surprised Evadne more, perhaps, than his wife did. She began by overlooking the little man somehow, without the least intending it and as he seemed to himself to fill the horizon when in society and block out all view of anybody else, he could only believe that she did it on purpose. He was by way of being an amateur actor, a low comedy man, but he was not sincere enough to personate any character or be anything either on the stage or off it but his own small inartistic self and no amount of bawling could make him an actor, though he bawled himself hoarse as a rule, mistaking sound for the science of expression. Still, it was the fashion to consider him funny. People called him Grigsby and Kickleberry Brown and laughed when he twiddled his thumbs. 
He was forever buffooning, and if he sat on a high stool, with his toes just touching the ground, his head on one side, a sad expression of countenance, and the tips of his fingers touching, he was supposed to be doing something amusing, and the effort would be rewarded with laughter, in which, however, Evadne could not join. These performances outraged her sense of the dignity of poor human nature, which it is easy enough to discount, but very difficult to maintain, and made her sorry for him. His hands were another offence to her. They were fat and podgy, with short pointed fingers, indicative of animalism and ill-nature, the opposite of all that is refined and beautiful truly of necessity an offence to her. It was at first that she had overlooked him, but after a time, when she began to know him better, the little, fat, funny man magnetised her attention. She could not help gravely considering him whenever she met him, and wondering about him, wondering about them both, in fact. She wondered, for one thing, why they were so fond of eating and drinking, her own taste in those matters being of the simplest description. I never deny myself anything, said Mrs. Guthrie Brimston, and she looked like it. Evadne wondered also at their meanness, when she saw them saving money by borrowing the carriages of people whom she had heard them class as nothing but shopkeepers, you know, we shouldn't speak to them anywhere else, and whom they ridiculed habitually for the mispronunciation of words, and for accents unmistakably provincial. What could Evadne have in common with these flippant people, scum themselves, forever on the surface, incapable even of seeing beneath, their every idea and motive, a falsification of something divine in life or thought? They did not even speak the same language. To their insidious slang, she opposed a smooth current of perfect English, which seemed to reflect upon the inferior quality of their own expressions and led to mutual embarrassment. Evadne meant every word she uttered and was careful to choose the one which should best express her meaning. Mrs. Guthrie Brimston's meanings, on the other hand, told best when half-concealed. Another difficulty was, too, that Evadne's clear, decided speech had the effect of exposing innuendo and insincerity and making both bad form, which, socially speaking, is a much more terrible stigma to bear than an accusation of dishonesty, however well authenticated. And even their very manner of expressing legitimate mirth was not the same. For Mrs. Guthrie Brimston laughed aloud, while Evadne's laugh was soundless. Evadne suffered when she found herself being toadied by these people. She said nothing, however. They were Colonel Cahoon's friends, and she felt herself forced to be civil to them, so long as he chose to bring them to the house. And they were, besides, an evil out of which good came to her quickly. For as soon as she understood their manners and their modes of thought, she felt her heart fill with earnest self-congratulation. If these are the kind of people whom Colonel Cahoon prefers, was her mental ejaculation. What an escape I have had! Thank heaven he is nothing to me! 
End of chapter 6